the, the idea of what it is to live as a disciple of Jesus, as laid out in Luke chapter 12, is really quite different than the way that the world wants to be able to present it. And as we begin to look at this passage, Jesus is fresh from having reproved the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And it seems as though their hypocrisy was, in a sense, fueled by a variety of motivations on their part. And one of the great ones, though, was that they had a desire to be viewed by people well. And they, they had a, a genuine fear of people. By the way, I'm going to stop real quick because I just noticed. But Ricardo is back. We just got married, by the way. Ricardo. And, uh, amen. Very cool. Uh, he, he was married down in the Dominican Republic. Amen. Um, your bride on, on her way someday. Okay, so... Pray that uh, INS has a, a moment of clarity and, and that she'll be with us uh, soon. Um, so, amen. Anyway, welcome back and saw some of the pictures. Amen. We're so happy for you. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, as we as we look at the the Pharisees that Jesus and, and by the way, Dave did such a great job of being able to preach on those woes that Jesus brought to the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. But their hypocrisy really seems to be driven to a great degree, by fear. And a lot of it is a fear of people. And as they regarded their life in God, a lot of it was corrupted rather severely because they took their eyes off of God and they made it all about people and how they were viewed before people. They wanted to have certain seats of respect. They didn't want to be able to confess their sins lest they be viewed differently by people. All of that is a fear-driven religion that results in being, yes, religious, being self-righteous rather than righteous. And we need to make sure that as, as we take stock of, of this year, that we can take stock of it to see, did we make our decisions based on fear or based on faith throughout this year? Now, back when I was working for Coca-Cola, uh, one of the things that I, that I did at the end of my time there was I was the director of marketing for cold drink. And the reason that they separated so precisely into, well, not precisely, into two big categories, cold drink and, or, or what we also called immediate consumption, that is you buy a bottle, you open it up, and you drink it. So we had immediate consumption, and then we had future consumption. That is, you buy a 12-pack. You don't buy a 12-pack at the grocery store and immediately open it up as soon as you get out and you start throwing those things back. Nor likely do you do that with a two-liter bottle. So all of those type of purchases, those packages, were under the, the marketing division called future consumption. And for me, it was immediate consumption. And one of the things that, that I had to do is really do a lot of uh, good research, or at least be able to uh, contract good research, to try and figure out the decision-making process of someone who's going to buy a cold drink for immediate consumption. Whether it be at a fountain machine or in a cold vault, you've got the big glass, you're trying to decide what it is that, that you want to be able to drink that day. And as you come up to it, there's a lot that goes into that decision-making process, more than you realize, more than I wanted to know, as a matter of fact, over the years. And as you walk up, and let's say, you know, a, a young lady walks up to the cold vault, and she's trying to decide what it is that she wants to buy and to drink this very day. And so, in you walk into the 7-Eleven, make your way to the back of the store, 
There's the big shiny bright lights, and in there, well merchandised, are all the different brands of carbonated beverages, all for your immediate consumption. And as you're there, there's a lot of stuff that's going through your mind in this decision-making process. And one of it might be, well, you know what, I, 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 I like the taste of Dr. Pepper, but, you know, it's the holiday season, I probably could maybe drop a few pounds, maybe I should go with Diet Dr. Pepper, because, again, why, why have an extra 150 calories right now? And so, Diet Dr. Pepper, but at the same time, you know, it's a time where I'm redoing my budget, and I'm trying to think economically, and, oh, look, look, Mr. Pibb is on sale. So, well, Mr. Pibb is less right now, but do I really want to walk into the office carrying a Mr. Pibb? I mean, what are people going to think of me if that goes on? And, and, and just as you have that thought that, oh, Mr. Pibb is on sale, maybe you might be saying to yourself, oh, I hope they don't carry diet, Mr. Pibb, because I've already settled that I'm going to drink a diet drink right now. Oh, please don't have diet, Mr. Pibb. Please don't have diet, Mr. Pibb, because, you know, who really wants to have that in their hand? There was a Simpsons episode where Bart and Lisa went over to the, the aunt and uncle, uh, to their aunt's house, and, and they asked, hey, what is it that you have to drink? And they said, well, we have celery soda, clamato, and Mr. Pibb. And they've all said, and Bart and Lisa said, we'll have water. So, <laughs> poor Mr. Pibb. In the company with celery soda and clamato. Well, anyway. So you're, you're hoping against hope that please don't have diet, Mr. Pibb. That way I don't have to feel bad about spending the extra money and I can still have a drink that tastes good. And, and let's face it, I'm going to look like I'm a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Only diet and health conscious. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Oh, look, no, no diet, Mr. Pibb. Praise God. Maybe you'll say praise God. And you reach in and you get your diet, Mr. Pibb, and you walk to the counter. And you think, oh, does that all really go into it? Yes, it does. All of that actually goes into it. Even if it's only in a split second, all of that goes into the, the decision-making process. And likewise, we, as followers of Christ, we have decision-making processes that guide the way that we make our way through life. And the big the big two paradigms through which we make our decisions really fall under whether we make those decisions through a filter of faith or through a filter of fear. I'm going to talk more about that. Let's go ahead and read the passage now, though, because it gives us a bit of an insight into what happens whether you do it through fear or through faith. So turn with me over to Luke chapter 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying. And by the way, when you are being crushed by thousands and you want to just talk to your own disciples, chances are that everybody else is hearing this, including the Pharisees, who are quite jealous at this very moment of the thousands upon thousands that are crushing each other trying to be able to get within earshot of what it is that Jesus is saying right now. And here's what he says. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. I'm sure the Pharisees were appreciating this conversation that they were now listening in on. What is this yeast of the Pharisees? Which is hypocrisy. And David did a great job on this, but hypocrisy, to, to be a, a hypocrite. Uh, as the, the original, that's the Greek word, is simply one who is an actor. 
And the, the idea of, of being an actor is that you would wear a mask. You would hide behind a facade. And for these Pharisees, they began to hide behind a facade of their own making. That facade was, I'm righteous man. When in fact, behind it all, they were proud and selfish and corrupt and greedy and full of fear. Not trusting in God, but really trusting in their own wits to be able to game the system and make their way through life in a way that they think would most benefit themselves. Not realizing that the entire time there's a sovereign God who is watching them put the mask on as they try to do a God thing in the process. But God makes it rather plain to us, by the way, that at the end of all time, when we all have to stand before the judgment seat, every one of those masks is going to be ripped away, and who we really are is what will appear before God. And as Romans 2.16 says, God is going to judge us by our secrets. Wow. That's a frightening prospect. And for these Pharisees, whose lives were really built on secrets because it was built on fear, well, that's what they had to look forward to. Jesus goes on to say, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. In other words, every mask, every cover-up is going to be ripped away, peekaboo, time for you to stand before the Lord. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. By the way, that's not the devil. The devil doesn't have that authority. And Revelation 20 makes it rather clear that before we even come to the judgment seat, God has already judged the devil, and he is already thrown into this very place that is being referenced here, Gehenna. There were two words for hell that are often appeared in our, uh, our English translation. One is Hades, and the other is Gehenna. Gehenna is that place of fiery torment, and it is the place where uh, Satan is thrown in, in Revelation chapter 20. So Satan's got no authority whatsoever when it's coming time to see who it is that could throw both body and soul into Gehenna, into the, into the lake of fire. Uh, it is God, in the end, who has that sort of an authority, and that is who we live for, and that is in whom we trust. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when you're brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about what, how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And so here in this passage, 
it's a lot of very frightening ideas that are put out by Jesus, but at the same time, some very comforting ideas as well, if we are in Christ. If we're not in Christ, well, this is sober time. Well, let me take in the depth of what it is that I understand who I am if I am not securely, firmly in Christ. But if I am in Christ, well, then what it is that I need to take away from this is that I'm not to be like a Pharisee. I'm not to be governed by fear. I'm not to be uh, one way with one group of people, one way with another group of people, just simply to curry favor. I am to live always before the very presence of God who's got my back. And God, what he wants from us is basically to live fearlessly. But not just simply fearlessly, because he does say here, do not fear. Now, it's interesting that he says, hey, fear him who, after body dies, can throw soul into hell. Well, that is as much a statement to the Pharisees that are listening in as it is for us. Now, we understand in Christ, it is a beautiful and positive thing to fear the Lord. And by the way, when you get a chance, do a little study on that phrase, fear of the Lord or fear God. And every single time that you'll come across it, you will be astounded at the blessings that result when you live in a sober, reverent fear of our God. And, and it is not something to think, well, isn't that a bit of a dysfunctional relationship that you're, you're meant to have? Fear is the beginning of knowledge. Perfect love does drive out fear. But without coming to a sensible, clarifying fear of the Lord, we can never then be able to see clearly enough to realize the great path that he offers before all of us. And it is a path of relationship and a path of love. It is a path of him having your back rather than him waiting to whack you in, 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 when the end of time comes. Uh, instead, fear sobers the mind. Fear clarifies. Fear allows us to realize that there is a heaven and a hell. Fear helps us to realize that we are a fallen creature. We have a God who's willing to give his own son to be able to reconcile us to him. Fear is what kind of gives us the wake-up call to be able to appreciate and evaluate all of those things and to respond to the grace that he offers to every one of us. I think it was Samuel Johnson who once said, there's nothing that clarifies the mind so much as the prospect of being hanged in the morning. And certainly so. If you knew that, whoa, uh, the jig is up, then all of a sudden, you, be, you know, the wheels begin to turn. Uh, for, for some of you, you might actually say, there's nothing that clarifies the thought so much as the prospect of having to hand in a term paper in the morning. Uh, suddenly as well, oh, oh, hey, you know, uh, th th that's, that's a bit disconcerting. I better get on it. I better think clearly. I better get this thing done. But, but fear does serve that purpose when it is a true and beautiful fear of the Lord. Uh, but what God does lay out for us here is the contrast to the living because of fear of men that the Pharisees have versus to be a disciple of Jesus and what our life can be. And to put it succinctly, what it is that God wants us to do is to be fearlessly authentic. And that's, that's my one idea that I hold to as I look at this passage each time. If you want to have a title to this sermon, that's it. Fearlessly authentic. Rather than be governed by fear of people where you have to vacillate depending on the crowd that you're trying to please, instead you can transcend all of that, living for God 
and being authentic, being who it is that God made you to be. And if you're to live authentically, well, you've been reborn. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. The old is gone. The new has come. You have been made new in the renewing of your mind. That is who you are. That is what God tells you you are. You were created, believe it or not, as, as Ephesians 4 tells us this, you were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's who you are. You are a disciple of Christ. You are an ambassador of God. You no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. But now you live no longer for yourself, but for him who died for you and was raised again. If you live authentically to that, without letting the muddling fear of people in any way be an anchor to the, the God's speed of your life that would be the result of, of knowing who you are, well, if you really live that way, wow, what a life you have waiting for you. And as you think back over this past year, if the December 28th you could go back and sit down and have a cup of coffee or a diet Mr. Pibb with the January 1st you, what would you say to the January 1st you as you think about living fearlessly authentic, as you think about making your decisions through faith rather than through fear? When you think about how different Interactions could have been through, throughout the year as you consider event after event. You know, for me, I think about the phone calls that I would have made of letting people know how much I respect or love or appreciate them rather than out of a, a fear of taking our relationship to a level that isn't comfortable where simply what I'm doing in many cases is, oh, look, it's their anniversary. Oh, look, it's their birthday. Oh, look, they've had a baby. Oh, they've graduated. Hey, here's what I'll do. I'll press a little button that says like and move on. Why? Because fear held me back from pushing the boundaries of the relationship. And faith, knowing that we're meant to be Loving one another deeply from the heart, faith would have made such a great difference in every one of those interactions. How about the coworkers you would have invited to lunch and had a conversation that makes a difference? Fear keeps you from that. Faith makes that happen every time. How about the neighbor's doors you would have knocked on and just simply ask them to come on over and have dessert with your family. Fear paralyzes us. Faith excites us about the possibilities that will occur after your knuckles hit their door. How about a friend in the faith that you know you needed to be able to have a correcting conversation with? A reproof to be able to Help them see a bit more clearly and see the path of righteousness. In fear, we think, ah, I don't know how it's going to go, how it's going to be received. But in faith, we realize, my goodness, God has allowed me to be observant of this. 
God considers me faithful to be able to make a difference in this person's life, wow, again, what a difference it would really make. How about even today, wondering why maybe somebody in your, your small group is, is not here? In fear, we just, you know, hope for the best, maybe send a text message of encouragement. With faith, we extend those boundaries. We grab the crackers and the Welch's grape juice. We show up at their house. We have a deep devotional time of taking communion together with them. We love them deeply from the heart. What a difference it makes. What a difference it makes over and over and over again. But we've got to look at what is the decision-making process that I'm employing here. Is it one of fear that keeps boundaries and comfort in place? Or is it one of faith that realizes that I'm in a prison of my own making here? I'm in a prison with unlocked doors. I can just walk right out. Fear is a lie. Fear is from Satan. God is trying to let us know that we are unfettered from fear. And the potential is endless of what it is that we can do when we live by faith. And one of the big ones is, how about just being real about the sin that is in our life? To be able to really confess. Have deep transparent relationships where it's okay to talk about failure and, and even disappointment and even sin. Knowing that we're in a community of grace and of faith. But instead, worrying about what people might think, we become just like a Pharisee. An unmarked grave, defiled on the inside, even defiling others. It's no way to live. With faith, yeah, we step out. Yeah, we, we talk about some of the ugliness that's gone on. But nonetheless, in the process of it, we celebrate grace just right after the words are completed from our mouth. And so if we're to live fearlessly and fearlessly authentic, the beautiful thing in this passage is, is that Jesus lays out three very clear reasons why we should live fearlessly authentic. Now let's look at those in turn as he lays them out in the passage. Number one, your worst case scenario, heavenly bliss. I, I, love, I love what Jesus says here. Hey, you know what? Let's say they kill you. And that happens. It happens to a lot of godly people. This is not a prosperity gospel from Jesus. He's not saying, hey, if you believe in me, everything's coming up roses. No, you know what? It may very well be the case that you are despised, you are rejected, and you are brought and before others and persecuted. And if that goes down that way, what's the worst thing that happened? You die. And by the way, if you die in Christ, what do you have waiting for you? Heavenly bliss. We just studied out the new heaven and the new earth. That's what awaits us. You know, even as, as Paul says, as he's in chains... Persecuted to the point of imprisonment, he says in Philippians 1.23, No, I'm torn. I actually desire to depart, meaning this world, through death, and be with Christ, which is far better. But I know that I probably need to you know, do a little something more for you guys, so I'm going to still stay here. That's my translation of Philippians 1.23. Yours may vary, especially if you look it up in an actual Bible. Now, the worst case is, you die, 
you appear before the divine tribunal, you're called before the judgment seat, and you're brought before the judgment seat, and the books are open, your sins are laid out, but even as the words begin to pour out, suddenly Jesus walks into that very scene with you on trial in the judgment seat and says, oh wait, I got this one. This one is mine. This one is in me. This one surrendered him or herself over and she is in me. She is in Christ. She is clothed with my righteousness right now. And as soon as that intervention occurs, you have nothing left but to just woohoo, celebrate and enter into the heavenly realms to be able to kick it with Abraham, John the Baptist, Isaac, and Elijah. And ask them, wow, tell me what it was like for you. That's the worst case scenario. I, I love what Gandhi said. I, I think it was Gandhi. Yeah, it was Gandhi who said this. He goes, you know, they may torture my body. They can break my bones. They can even kill me. And then, what will they have? My dead body. But they'll never have my obedience. That's who we are in Christ. We have no fear. We have no fear of even death. So what are you worried about anything else that anybody's going to be able to do to you? Wait, they might look askance at me in the cafeteria because I prayed for that tray of food that they consider lunch at, at my, my high school. You better pray for that tray of food. <laughs> for multiple reasons. But one, to be able to have a platform by which somebody can know that you stand for something, that you live by faith. You're not going to be cowed by fear of, of, uh, of some teenager who's fickle beyond belief and is going to change their opinions of you and everybody else 17 more times before the school year is over. You're going to let that person guide you? What in the world? But to recognize no matter what comes our way, we're hooked up. We get eternal life. New bodies, imperishable amazing and eternal that awaits us. The second reason that Jesus gives us to be able to live fearlessly is that to God, you have great worth. I love what he, what he goes on to say. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And I have to give God a little um, practice and subtraction each day, apparently. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Even the smallest bird, the most insignificant creature of a sparrow, which goes unnoticed, even that creature is so very dear and intimate to God and then he, Jesus gives us this comparison going from the lesser to the greater. How much more Lakeisha? How much more Phil? How much more Joan? How much greater worth do you have? You are of such great worth. And sometimes it's easy to think, well, I just get lost in the crowd. No, you don't get lost in the crowd. If you ever see a flock of sparrows, not one of them is outside the intimate care and affection of our God. You're not lost in the crowd. 
You are God's very dear and special possession. I love what Isaiah 43 says. This is a great passage, by the way. If you're ever feeling as though you don't know where you stand with God, make this a memory passage for yourself. Isaiah 43, 4 and 5 reads, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Isn't that a great sentiment? You are precious in my eyes. You are honored and I love you. And he goes on to say, fear not because I am with you. If you ever wonder if you're just a little speck among many that can get lost before a big, huge, sovereign God, you cannot. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139 goes on to say, God's thoughts for you outnumber the grains of sand of the seashore. That's how much God thinks of you. You try and count the grains of sands of the seashore. One geologist did try. His best guess is 100 billion times 100 billion. Those are God's thoughts for us, poetically uh, described. But that's how you are viewed by God. Why live in fear of man when you have a God who values you with that kind of intimacy? But there's so many people. Yeah, and you have an infinite God. This infinite Father views you through that intimate, beautiful lens. And thirdly, Jesus says, to live with authenticity, fearlessly, is because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Say, you're going to come before synagogues and rulers and even other authorities. Don't give it a thought. Because the Holy Spirit is going to teach you what you should say. You've been given the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 5 says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as guarantee. An earnest, guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1, uh, 13 and 14 says the same thing. Romans 8, 15. You didn't receive this Spirit as a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. He goes on to say, we are indeed children of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. If you've been born again of water and spirit, if you have been regenerated by the great work of the Holy Spirit, then something that you've experienced that all of the Old Testament heroes only long to be able to see and they are now completed in their quest by seeing it happen in you, you have. You've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come and that deposit dwells within you. That never happened in the Old Testament. John 7, 38 and 39 even tells us clearly from Jesus, this is not going to happen until Jesus is resurrected. But he has been and you have been renewed and made new by the very Holy Spirit of God. And so when you're brought before the authorities and you think it's going to be a humana, uh, humana, 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 uh, I, I, I think, uh, well, uh, God is good all the time. And you don't know what to say. You are going to be guided by the Holy Spirit. 
As a matter of fact, if you could just throw off fear, you could be guided by the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. And all of those scenarios that I just laid out, when we live by faith, the Holy Spirit is then no longer shackled by our fear, by our inhibitions, and He's able to express Himself fully through us. And when He does, we love deeply. When He does, we have joy. When He does, we make a difference for God. When He does, we proclaim Jesus. When He does, we live without fear. When He does, we're not afraid to call out a correction here or there. When He does, we have no fear of persecution. When He does, we only live in anticipation of the hope that is to be given to us. Let this be a year where you live fearlessly authentic. Let this be a year where you become keenly aware of your decision-making process. Every time you encounter any sort of a crossroads of life, and they happen multiple times every single day, and at every crossroads, let it be that you decide, not between Diet Mr. Pibb and Diet Dr. Pepper, but you decide between fear and faith. You decide over and over again, all right, great, this is a frightening proposition, this is an awkward situation, this is new ground, perfect. I get to make sense of it through faith. I might be brought before authorities. I might have situations that are difficult. I might have situations where people are going to think odd of me. That's fine. I'm going to process it, understand it through faith, and allow the Holy Spirit to be expressed through me. This year, let this be the year you live fearless. Fearless. Every single time you decide what it is you're going to do with your time what it is you're going to do with your money, what it is that you're going to do with your relationships, what it is that you're going to do with your ambitions and your allegiances, that every time you process it through faith. What it is you're going to do in your marriage? What it is it you going to do with your kids? What it is it you going to do as you serve God, as you give to the body of Christ? Process it through faith. And then when you come back on December 28th of next year, and talk to the January 1 you of, of, of this coming year, you know what it's going to be is, hey, you know what? That was a pretty good year. What a year. Look at the memories we have. Look at our little Facebook slideshow of here's my year. Faith, 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 faith. Top to bottom. Faith. Faithful decisions. Holy Spirit being able to be expressed through me. The only thing that could unravel that is fear. That's what Satan wants. Let it be that right now, you do your inventory of this past year. Think back of decisions that could have been different. And then resolve, really truly resolve, of how it is that you're going to live this upcoming year 100% with faith rather than fear. Live fearless, fearlessly authentic. Amen.